Welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my Co-Editor-in-Chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I am absolutely delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Colleen Kelly, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University and a leading researcher in the field of C. difficile colitis. Today, we'll discuss her recent article, ACG Clinical Guidelines, Prevention, Diagnosis, and Treatment of Clostridioides Difficile Infections, which is now available both online and in print in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Dr. Kelly, welcome. Let's begin simply. What prompted the development of this guideline? Don't we already have all the data that we need about preventing and diagnosing C. difficile colitis? Well, I was asked to uh, lead author these updated guidelines. Apparently, it's something every couple of years as we get more data or things change, we like to update the guidelines and keep them current. And they were last published. Christina Sarawich and colleagues did a great job in 2013. But a lot's changed since then. Um, There's become some more treatments available for C. diff. We have a lot more uh, experience with things like fecal microbiota transplant or FMT. And so I guess the college decided the time was right to update and redo the guidelines. And I was asked to lead that effort. Absolutely. Lots of new information and a great opportunity for clinicians to learn new information. So how common is this problem? Are we making headway with C. difficile colitis or is it just getting worse? Probably for the first decade at the turn of this century, we saw a lot of uh, increase in C. difficile infections. Part of this was related to a more virulent strain that initially was described to Canada where people were having higher rates of colectomy and death. Uh, We were also seeing more diagnosis of C. diff with use of PCR-based testing. But as a population ages and people are getting more courses of antibiotics, that was another reason, just more people with more risk factors for C. diff. But through a lot of efforts, new C. difficile infections, particularly in healthcare settings, seem to have leveled off. We're not seeing that really big continuing rate of increase due to, you know, efforts with hand washing and environmental control. But what we are seeing more of and continue to see more of are rates of uh, recurrent C. difficile infection. So not a first infection, but people who are coming back with multiply recurrent infections. And that's actually gone up about 200%. We're also seeing more community acquired C. diff infections. So while we've made a lot of headway in the hospital setting, we're still seeing patients who you know, maybe are young and healthy and don't have a lot of the risk factors developing C. diff in the community, either after a course of antibiotics for something as simple as a dental infection. And I think the scary thing for me is I'm seeing more people who don't remember getting an antibiotic for anything and who are getting C. diff. Clearly a changing and evolving landscape. One more reason for these great guidelines. So you've kind of touched on it a little bit, Colleen. But what are some of the most common risk factors our listeners should be aware of for the development of C. difficile colitis? So the biggest risk factors remain older patients, so age over 65, and contact with the healthcare setting. So people who've been in the hospital for any reason or been, you know, a surgery and treatment with antibiotics. Those are the three big ones. Another risk factor is patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And, you know, this is well described that it can be implicated in the disease flares. And we see when people present with a flare with diarrheal symptoms, that it's important to test those people for C. diff as well. So thinking about these risk factors you just mentioned, age, antibiotic use, comorbid conditions, is this something we can prevent 
moving forward? Or is it just one of the facts of life of living in 2021? I do fear that we're more vulnerable as a population to infections like C. difficile as our collective microbiome has become somewhat compromised and weaker through generations of um, antibiotic use and changes that have happened to our environment. We can do a lot with antibiotic stewardship programs that's been shown where they come into hospitals and with aggressive measures to limit quinolone antibiotics, they've been able to decrease rates of C. diff infection. I still see a lot of places where people are getting antibiotics unnecessarily. I have patients who maybe have an artificial joint that was put in six years ago. And every time they get their teeth cleaned, a dentist is giving them an antibiotic. Same goes for other kind of prophylactic use of antibiotic that's really potentially unnecessary. So I think we can still identify some of those places to make some headway and decrease unnecessary antibiotic use. Great points. So how can we prevent it? Many patients use and many providers recommend probiotics, but is there good data to support their use to prevent the first episode of C. difficile colitis? So I think that this is one of the big changes that our ACG guidelines have made and that compared to the 2013 guidelines and to the IDSA guidelines and that we do not recommend probiotics for either primary or secondary prevention of C. diff. Primary prevention being taking a course of antibiotics and you're just taking probiotics along with them to prevent ever getting C. diff and secondary being after one has already developed C. diff, taking probiotics along with the vancomycin to maybe keep it from coming back or recurring, but really did a heavy literature review on this and did not find great evidence for either indication. And there is a Cochrane review that suggested that primary prevention, there might still be a role for probiotics in primary prevention. But when you really kind of dig deep into that data, it was a couple of studies that drove those results of that meta-analysis. And in both of those studies, these were places where the incident level of C. difficile in the background population, who was very, very high, much higher than anything we see in any of our centers here. And there have now been two really well done placebo controlled trials looking at high risk populations, high risk populations, hospitalized, elderly, getting antibiotics for various infections. And in neither of those did probiotics show to be effective at primary prevention of C. diff. As far as secondary prevention, the data is even weaker. And I just, we do see a lot of patients as C. diff providers who come in with bags and bags of probiotics. They're spending $100 a month or more. And we just didn't think that the data was there to recommend that to people. We recommend things to our patients. We want to recommend things that are going to be effective and that are going to work. And it really started to feel like a lot of the probiotic use was magical thinking. And so we took it out of this guideline. The other reason some people have said, well, they don't hurt necessarily. And if it makes patients feel empowered or feel like they're doing something, you know, isn't that a good enough reason, you know, or, or maybe they work, but there's now some emerging data that probiotic use after or during courses of antibiotics might actually hinder normal flora coming back and be potentially even harmful in that way. And certainly to people who are immunocompromised, there have been cases of probiotic fungemia or sepsis. So we thought that there's at least some potential for harm and very little protective effects. And so that was, you know, those are the reasons that we decided to take it out of these guidelines. Wonderful. So very significant frame shift in our thinking. And sometimes it's important to not only say what we should do, but maybe what we shouldn't do, and clearly the data supporting probiotic use is not good and we shouldn't be using them. 
So Colleen, let's shift gears a little bit now and talk about diagnosis. You would think in this current day and age, a diagnostic strategy would be crystal clear, but it's not. So the first question is, who should we test? Everybody with diarrhea? C. diff diagnosis is really tricky. And there is no single test that can serve as a good standalone test. And you really, really have to use your thinking cap. Um, you used to, you know, we're gastroenterologists. People come to us with diarrhea. Um, we have to, first of all, think, you know, what is the course of these patients' diarrheal symptoms been? If someone comes to you and they say, I've had diarrhea for three years, it's unchanged. It's probably not a person that you want to test for C. diff. If it's an acute diarrhea, because a C. diff occurs as an acute illness, or if it's diarrhea in the setting of inflammatory bowel disease flares, whether or not someone has uh, been exposed to antibiotics, because we do see those people with C. diff who've not been treated with antibiotics, those are people to test. But you always have to think about what are the symptoms and what is the probability that this is likely to be a C. diff infection. The reason for that is the PCR-based testing that we have is so highly sensitive. And there are people who are carriers who um, may have diarrhea from another etiology and test positive by PCR. And then you get really confused. You're confused. Is this something we treat? The patient's confused. Really, you should only be testing people where you have a suspicion that their symptoms are actually due to C. difficile infection. So that's a great segue too to talking about which test to use. And you you mentioned PCR testing, but what about a simple culture or should we do an immunoassay or is glutamate dehydrogenase the best place to start? I am old enough to remember before the PCR era, and we remember having to send at least three tests. That was the enzyme immunoassay, looking for the actual toxin that the organism produces that makes you sick. And that was not a highly sensitive test. And that was the reason that we had to submit multiple samples sometimes before getting one that was positive or sometimes even treating people empirically if we had high suspicion. Those were largely replaced by the PCR-based testing. You can do that very quickly. It was inexpensive. And many big hospital systems went to PCR-based testing about 10 years ago. And that has an advantage in that you can get a test back very quickly and it's very sensitive. So you only need to send one specimen. The disadvantage of it though, is that it's so sensitive that it's pick up very small amounts of the organism that some people carry in a colonized state. I think the thing that's confusing sometimes is you'll see the report come back and it will say PCR toxin. And people assume that means that it's testing for the toxin, but what it's really testing for is the presence of a toxigenic organism. So it's testing for the presence of C. diff that's capable of producing toxin that carries a gene that produces toxin A or B not for the presence of the toxin itself. And that's very important to keep in mind. GDH can be useful as a screening test. It's highly sensitive. There's also uh, glutamate dehydrogenase is produced in large amounts by any Clostridium difficile, whether or not it's a toxin producing strain. So what we've proposed by these guidelines, and I think all of the authors, we just have a lot of experience in C. diff and we've seen a lot of misdiagnosis. I'd say about 25% of patients that come to me with a diagnosis of recurrent C. difficile infection, you know, does this person need an FMT? I end up finding some other cause of their diarrheal symptoms. And what they have is a repeatedly positive PCR. They're not getting better with courses of vancomycin or standard C. difficile treatments. And then we find that they have celiac disease or IBS, um, post-infectious IBS after having maybe had one real C. diff infection, and now they're left with the lingering kind of loose stool bloating stuff that we see commonly. No single test can stand alone to make the diagnosis. We recommend in patients who you have a suspicion that you start with a highly sensitive test, 
either the GDH or the PCR, then use that test more as a screen. If that test is positive, moving to the more specific test, and that being the toxin immunoassay. And if both of those are positive, you can be pretty certain the patient has to get the seal and treat them. If they're discordant and you have a positive PCR, but then a negative toxin immunoassay, you really have to stop and think, is this colonization versus active infection? And kind of think through things accordingly. Lots of great teaching points there for our listeners. So thank you. Now, thinking about our patients in clinic and in the hospital, are all cases of C. difficile colitis the same? Or is there a strategy to help classify these patients with regard to disease severity? This was another place that we deviated a little bit from the ACG 2013 guidelines, and we aligned ourselves more with the classification scheme that's in the IDSA guidelines, in that we classify C. diff as non-severe, severe, and fulminant. So three categories to remember. Um, You might remember the previous guidelines in 2013 had mild to moderate as one category, and then severe and fulminant. Non-severe infection, these are patients who don't mount a real high white blood cell count. They don't have a leukocytosis. They're usually outpatients, um, having a lot of diarrhea, but not symptoms that would classify them as severe. Severe symptoms, usually these are the people you're seeing, they come into the hospital, leukocytosis, white blood cell count greater than 15,000, volume depletion, and you'll see some acute kidney injury. So creatinine more than 1.5. And those are the, probably the two biggest predictors of severe infection and kind of a complicated course. Other things that you'll see in severe that we didn't necessarily put as diagnostic criteria for severe, people who have a lot of abdominal pain or uh, a fevers, and then the fulminant C. difficile is when they meet all the criteria for severe given the leukocytosis and the volume depletion, but at the same time, they're showing more signs of end organ dysfunction. These are people that are very, very sick, admitted to the intensive care unit. They may be hypotensive, requiring pressors, toxic megacolon type patients. So that's great. So we'll think about those three categories as we now shift gears and start thinking about treatment, because that will play a role here in decision-making. And many of our listeners and many providers still rely on metronidazole, but is it time to put this on the shelf or does it still have a role in treating C. difficile colitis? So this was another thing that we struggled with a little bit in the guidelines, and it had there was a lot of discussion here. We really looked because the more recent IDSA guidelines, you may remember, have completely taken metronidazole out as an option for any patient with C. diff. And the reason they did that is because it um, has been shown to be inferior in severe cases. So in, there's been studies where people with severe C. diff infections who are treated with metronidazole have more complications and die more. The other reason that it was taken out was because there's been increasing reports of resistant infections. So C. difficile infections that aren't getting better with courses of metronidazole. But when we pulled out the data and looked at treatment of non-severe infection, it wasn't clear that vancomycin was highly superior to metronidazole in non-severe C. diff. And particularly in patients without comorbidities, we're not talking about IBD patients or patients who are hospitalized or people who are you know, immunocompromised or have other comorbidities, but in your average C. diff patient who may be young and otherwise healthy, we didn't see a reason that you couldn't treat with metronidazole and expect a majority of those patients to recover. And there is a huge cost difference still between metronidazole, which 10 times less expensive than oral vancomycin. And we all have those patients who don't have the same resources and we can't necessarily access the vancomycin for them. And we felt like in younger, low-risk patients that it should still be an option for treating 
Thank you. And you've kind of alluded to this a little bit in terms of disease severity and thinking about treatment. Um, but for somebody with more severe disease, is vancomycin the first choice? And if so, what dose do you like to use and for how long? So patients with severe infection, you know, defined as the leukocytosis greater than 15,000 or creatinine more than 1.5, you have a choice and you can treat either. And we didn't necessarily put one as preferable to another, but you can either treat with oral vancomycin and the dose is 125 milligrams four times a day for 10 days or with fidaxomycin. Uh, fidaxomycin 200 milligrams twice a day for 10 days. And we felt for like initial first line treatment of severe infections that th that was our recommended to choose one or the other. Is there a patient population where fidaxomycin might be the absolute first choice? Because I think some clinicians wonder, should they reach for that first? Or do you think they're equally weighted with vancomycin? So there is a big cost difference between these two medications, 10 times more expensive in the case of fidexamycin compared to vancomycin. And there is definitely some theoretical advantages to fidexamycin in that it's a more narrow spectrum drug and in this way maybe preserves other gut flora. Vancomycin is kind of a double-edged sword. It has activity against C. difficile, of course, but it also does a lot of broad spectrum damage to the rest of the gut flora. So there is some evidence that using fidaxomycin early on in the course, first line, you may see less recurrent disease. So you may see, if we use fidaxomycin earlier, you may see a little difference in rates of C. difficile recurrence. I don't think that that was a huge, huge effect, huge enough for us to at least say we need to put fidaxomycin first for anybody. But, you know, if it was something that you can get covered, um, that the patient isn't paying a lot of, you know, a, a huge copay for, or that you're able to get some, if insurance is, if you're able to use fidaxomycin first line, you certainly can, and it might have those theoretical advantages. Wonderful. So as we near the end here, we can't have a conversation about C. difficile colitis without discussing fecal transplants or FMT. This has been a game changer for many of our patients. Who should we consider for this therapy and what are the results? ACG 2013 guidelines were the first guidelines, the first ACG guidelines to recommend FMT for patients with recurrent disease. And they recommended it after a third recurrence or a fourth episode. Uh, we have gotten a lot more clinical trial data since the publication of those guidelines that really support that FMT is the most effective treatment out there for recurrent C. difficile infections. And so rather than making patients go through course after course of treatment that is unlikely to be effective, we know after a just a first recurrence, your chances of having a subsequent recurrence are 40%. And after a second recurrence, that's after C. diff's come back twice, so a third episode, the chances are 50 or 60% that it's going to come back again. So continuing to have patients on these long tapers and in this kind of state where it's still, you know, it, it becomes more likely to come back than not, we're comparing this to FMT where we know a single dose of FMT delivered colonoscopically is over 90% effective in almost all studies. We kind of escalated FMT kind of up the ladder here. And instead of making people have fourth episode or third recurrent, we've put, you know, FMT after a second recurrence of C. difficile infection or a third episode. And you can even consider using it earlier in patients whose episodes of C. diff have been very severe where they've landed in the hospital. You might use it only after a second episode in those patients. So not only is FMT highly efficacious, but also when you ask patients are really satisfied with it. And many of our patients come back and ask, why didn't we do it earlier, right? 
Exactly. This has really just been a wonderful conversation for our listeners, Colleen. Any last thoughts for them? I think we're going to see some changes in the next couple of years. FMT has been highly effective and I think it's, you know, undoubtedly a really powerful treatment, but there's a lot of issues and it's been difficult sometimes to administer because of where it is in the sort of approval process. And, you know, the FDA is allowing it to be done for cases of C. diff, but it's being done under enforcement discretion. And we don't always have a consistent, reliable source of donor stool. So it has been difficult and it's used probably because of that isn't as, it isn't as widespread as it should be. We now have the emergence of these live biotherapeutic products. And we've had a couple of positive clinical trials over the last year. These are encapsulated live gut bacteria that um, we're going to be able to administer much more easily without going through you know, identifying and screening donors ourselves or bringing people in necessarily to have it done colonoscopically. I think these have a potential to be a real game changer and enable FMT to be done on a more widespread basis. Colleen, once again, thank you so much for this great educational discussion. On behalf of our listeners, on behalf of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, thank you so much for this great contribution to the field. Thank you.